Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Let's, uh, let's jump in here. I, I think I'm ready. Uh, you guys have been with me for several weeks through the study of 1 Samuel, and the fact that I'm going to somehow, by God's grace, cover five chapters in one night when I usually can't get done with one verse. And, and we start off that exact same way. Uh, kudos to Chad Ragsdale. Thanks to him for covering last week. I was speaking to the students uh, over at the SMC. But also, uh, he's, a, he's a dear friend, so I can say this, uh, curse Chad Ragsdale uh, for not going ahead and covering part of the text we got to cover tonight. I'm like, really? Like, you teach at a Bible college and you left that for me? Thanks, man. appreciate that. So as soon as I walked in the door tonight, I was doing a brief. Uh, we've just got part of a text tonight that is just downright bizarre. Uh, and we have read some bizarre things, I mean, as we've gone through this text from... Yeah, we didn't need to go into all of them. There's just been some weird things that have happened. And tonight is one of those that's just downright bizarre. Let's do this. I would always like to start with a question. And I've, I've always tried to start a little bit light and a little bit fun. Uh, but tonight, we're going to start a little bit of a serious question because there's a pretty serious turn that happens in this text uh, that I want to get into. Uh, can you think of a time in your life? And we'll let you just kind of talk about that. We'll pause it here. As you guys listen to the podcast, you can just think about it while you're in your car or while you're, you're hanging out at the house. Uh, and, and cook on this, but I want you to think of a time in your life when you have felt uh, fear at a deeply spiritual level. I mean, you have felt outright fear at a spiritual level. Uh, more than just somebody jumped out and scared you, to the point where the Holy Spirit is welling, welling up inside of you, and, and on a spiritual level, you felt evil, you felt fear. So, I know it's kind of a bizarre question, like, yeah, we'll start off off the, not jumping in on the deep end here or anything. Uh, and usually everything's fun and light. It's our last time together. This is our last week uh, to wrap up. Uh, but I think it's an appropriate question uh, because of where Saul ends up in his life tonight. So we're going to press pause. Let's talk about that for a second. Hey, if you just joined us the podcast, I forgot to press record. I've done it before. I apologize. Just tell a couple of stories. Um, tonight is one of those moments that has got some things at a spiritual level are just, they're just bizarre. And, we, and especially as Americans at times, uh, we don't know what to do with things that are, are this spiritually, honestly, spiritually elusive and, and for us at times. We don't, we don't know how to, how to wrap our minds around it. Uh, we'll get to that. So we're going to cover all five chapters. We're going to wrap up this text. Uh, and to me, I think this is when you find two men hitting rock bottom. Uh, and, and David will come out of it. Saul will not. I think this is, a, in my opinion, one of the one of the lower spots in David's life. Other than maybe the whole Bathsheba Uriah moment, this one here is a pretty low spot in David's life. And, uh, and in fact, very few times is the name of God even mentioned in conjunction with David as we roll through these chapters. And and I think if we've learned anything about this writing, it's intentional. He's a great author. He's a great writer. And, and he's not making mistakes. And so when God's name is rarely mentioned in conjunction with David, it's on purpose. So we're going to cover five chapters. And living too true to how I, uh, how I teach, uh, we're going to make it through four words and stop. So, yeah, there we go. Uh, let's, let's see if you guys can draw out the tension here. Okay? We're going to look at a text real quick. Before we get in, we're going to start at chapter 27. Before we go to chapter 27, we've got to go back to chapter 23. 
Okay? So let's roll backwards to chapter 23. Turn there with me real quick. I want to point a couple things out. All right? Uh, chapter 23, verse 2, it says, He inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go attack these Philistines? All right? Don't worry about the context. I know that, that we've studied that text uh, when he saves that city. Verse 4, you see something else. It says, Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him. All right? What's, what's the common denominator in those two verses? Yeah, you inquired of the Lord, all right? I want you to, to notice something here. It, it's, it's intentional that the writer does here, right? He inquired of the Lord. Watch what happens when you get to chapter 27. Read the first four, four, four five words. But David thought to himself. You feel it? You feel the shift. It's almost like a cold front just moved in even in David's heart. Before, he inquires the Lord, but then all of a sudden, David says to himself, man, I don't know about you, but I know about me, and that is my issue sometimes. That is me, man. I just want to kick my own butt for being so stupid sometimes, where I find those moments I rely on God, I'm talking to God, I'm searching at God's wisdom, and then all of a sudden, it's that moment of the car, or it's that moment where, you know, I've been thinking, and any time I leave with the phrase, I've been thinking, it's almost dangerous for me. Man, I've been thinking, really, maybe you should stop. Because most of the time I get in there, I end up saying things I don't mean or getting myself involved in things I don't want to be involved in. And that's David right now. He's no longer right now inquiring of God. And I want, I want you to watch the pattern that's about to unfold in David's life and think about your own life and patterns you get into. Here it goes. But David thought to himself, one of these days I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. All right, you all been in this study long enough, Okay. Don't feel bad. I know that David is a big deal. And I know that we all kind of have this, you know, we all look up to David. We've been taught to since our youth. As little kids, we're taught to almost like, not worship David, but if you grew up in church at all, then you know it's like, oh man, David, he's one of the good guys. Let's just take a time out here. Does David sin? Is David a man? Does David screw up? Yeah. David gets much blood on his hand that God wouldn't even let him build the temple. Solomon has to build it. David's the same guy that's going to murder another man's, you know, another woman's husband. You know, he's the same man that's going to commit adultery. He's the same man that as a father is going to drive Absalom and cause civil war and bring about a divided kingdom. I want you to understand that David loves the Lord. He loves God. But at the same time, he's conflicted. At the same time, he's a guy who struggles with sin. Please don't rip his humanity away. He's not Jesus. Okay? Jesus is fully human and doesn't sin. David's fully human and sins on a regular basis. He's a whole lot like you and a whole, especially a whole lot like me. So as we look at this text, let's just take a deep breath and let us kind of pick at David a little bit. It's easy for us to pick at Judas. You know, it's easy for us to pick at Saul. I think it's okay right now for us to take an honest look at David's life. If we're going to look at his strengths, it's okay to also look at his weaknesses. All right? Let's just start with that. He says, one of these days I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. What's wrong with that? You've been in the study for a while. What's wrong? Doesn't he know that he's going to be king? Yeah, he knows he's going to be king. Are you kidding me, David? I mean, how many times Samuel's told you it's not going to happen. Jonathan's not going to, it's not, it's told you it's not going to happen. But all of a sudden he's thinking to myself, I, I know one of these days. I know what's going to happen, man. I know, I know, I know. I was like, David, you're right. You do know, and what you're thinking to yourself is not true. You're not going to be destroyed by the hand of Saul. It's not going to happen, David. He goes on and says, he says, uh, he says, the best thing I can do, ay, 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 the best thing you can do, David, 
The best thing to do is escape to the land of the Philistines. Really? The same people, you've killed their giant, um, you've killed thousands of their people, and the best thing you can do, what's the best thing David could have done? Trusting God. The best thing David could have done is cry to God and ask for wisdom. And he's not doing that right now. He's living on his own understanding. Completely. You know, Solomon, the son of the right, trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, all your ways acknowledge him, he'll make your path straight. And, uh, and I wonder where, if Solomon learned that from his dad. One of Solomon at some point heard his dad say, man, Solomon, don't be dumb like me, go to the Philistine territory. Don't, don't, do, don't do that. Trust the Lord with all your heart, don't lean on your own understanding. And, he, and David may have told him the story, man, I remember this one time, I said to myself, best thing I can do is go to the Philistines, Woo, you won't believe how that paid out. Keep on reading. It says, uh, then Saul will get up searching for me uh, anywhere in Israel, uh, and I'll slip out of his hand. And so David and 600 men went with him. Uh, they left and went over to Asia, son of Moab, uh, king of Gath. Now let's just kind of keep in mind, this is not his first trip to Gath. Anybody remember the other trip to Gath we read about earlier? Tell me about it. What do you remember? He ended up to be crazy. Yeah, he pretends to be absolutely insane. I can't remember what chapter that is, that's in, but somebody can flip back and remind me. Um, he goes to Gath before... When he, you know, he lies, you know, to the priest. And then what happens because he lies to the priest? Remember what happens? Yeah, the priest all gets slaughtered. And he runs to Gath and he acts insane. He's got beard and his, you know, spit coming out of his beard. He loses ever-loving mind. He flees for his life. God spares him out of Gath, lets him escape. The king's like, man, get this guy out of here. And now David, for some reason, thinks it's a smart thing to go back. Man, this, this is the issue for me when I look at David as a, you know, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool to his folly. As Proverbs would say. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool to his folly. It's like, David, what are you doing, man? Trust in God. God's told you to make you king, and you're just trying to take matters into your own hands. It says, uh, David and man, they settled there. <coughs> and when Saul's home was in Gath, he didn't search for him. Well, of course he didn't. You get these five Philistine towns... Saul's not going to go trying to pick a fight with the Philistines and he knows he can't win. He's just not going to do it. We're going to skip through some of this. Um, but there's some important things here that David does. Um, David says to the king, he says, I found favor in your eyes. Uh, he says, let a place be assigned for me in one uh, of the country towns. I can live there. Uh, he lives in than Ziklag. Don't worry about Ziklag right now. We'll get to that later on. Uh, he lives in this Philistine territory for about, it says, like, like a year and four months he lives there. So he lives in Ziklag is, is his town. That's where he's, his family, he's got a couple of wives now. Uh, if you guys remember Makah, they talked about her last week. She's been given to another. I wish I could take you fast forward into 2 Samuel and her broken heart that's going to play out later on, but we don't have time to get to that tonight. He's got two other wives that he's brought in. You, you're caught up. You know what's going on. Chad should have covered that stuff all last week. And so every day, David goes out raiding. He just goes on raids every day. He's just amassing wealth at this point. And it says, uh, he went and raided the Gershites, he raids the Malachites, he raids and raids and raids and raids. In verse 9, it says, whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or a woman alive, but took sheep and cattle and donkeys and camels and clothes, and then returned to Achish. Listen, that's hard to read. It's hard to read. Especially in our day and age, when you think about genocide, and you think about what's going on, that's hard to read. Uh, I wish I could soften the blow, I wish I could... I could go through and make this sound just like, oh, he didn't really do that. No, he really did. He did. He slaughtered everyone. Uh, 
and he did it for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I think he is still acting almost uh, as a judge, clearing out the land. It's part of what they're supposed to do from the beginning, and the Israelites never did it. And David is doing one of the things that judges were, were supposed to have done anyway. God's using David to clear the land. going to have to get him out of here. Because there's a kingdom coming, and even in David's you know, disobedience of taking matters into his own hand, God's still going to utilize him to get his purposes done. And the land's got to be cleared one way or the other. And I keep coming back to this point on, on clearing the land. You have to understand they weren't going to leave this place peacefully. They've already slaughtered the Israelites. The Israelites slaughtered them. It's nothing but a bloodbath. There, there's not going to be any refugee camps built. There's not going to be any nations welcoming them in. It's either you leave or you die. There's no prisons. There's nowhere to put anyone. The only way we get this land is we have to forcibly take it. And David knows at this point, if he leaves anybody alive and word gets back to Achish, he knows he's done. He's done for. It. And he basically just, he's amassing. The amount of wealth that David begins to amass right now is massive. Massive wealth he's bringing in. Moving on. He says, wait, you ask, you know, where did you go raiding a day? Uh, today? Dave would say, he gets a negative of Judah. Uh, you know, and he basically goes through all the different people groups aligned. Either Judah were his own people. Okay? When he says, I went raiding against Judah, David's basically saying, I went raiding against my own people and killed them. I took all their stuff. Well, if you're Philistine, you're, the, you're one of the Philistine kings. You're like, yeah, David, way to go, man. You're turning on your own people. And I think the king, the Philistine king right now is like, sweet, Saul's going to hate you even more. Now your own people are going to hate you. I'm all you got. I know you got a great warrior. Well, she going to go. And probably this king looks at it and goes, this is great for me. Because David's given him some of the wealth. He's, you know, he's given him some of the spoils of war. And he has no idea that he's taken it from, you know, some of his allies. No idea this is going on. And there's no one left to tell the story. He says, uh, he says, uh, what did I say? He says, he did not leave a man or woman to be, uh, to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did, and set to his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. He says, uh, Achish tr- trusted David and said to himself, he's become so odious to his people and the Israelites uh, that he'll be my servant forever. All right, we're going to come back to that story here, to let, look, here in a second. Now I've got to take you on a journey that's just a bit demented. Uh, it's, it's weird. I wish I could sterilize it and say, oh, that's not really what happened. Uh, but this is just a, one of those bizarre stories in Scripture. So let's shift to chapter 28. Okay, here we go. In those days, the Philistines gathered their, gathered their forces to fight against Israel. And they just said to David, uh, you must understand that you and your men... Uh, oh, wait, we're going to get to that apart in a second. Uh, okay, let's, let's, I forgot. We've got to deal with this part first in chapter 28. I forgot about this. He says, uh, you'll see for yourself what your servant can do. So basically, the king of Israel, or the king of Philistine says, we're going to go war against the Israelites. You know, what's David supposed to do? Now think about it. He's in checkmate right now. Consider David's position. He's been slaughtering this guy's allies, and the guy has no idea. This guy thinks he's like going to war against the Philistines. David, at some level, his whole family's there with him. All of their wives, all of their children, they're all settled down in this town right now. It's not just him and his 600 men. It's their families as well that live in Ziklag. If he looks at this guy and he says, I don't want to go fight my own people. All of a sudden this guy goes, I know you're not loyal to me. If you're the king of the Philistines and you look at this guy and say, hey, we're going to go war against your people. Come with me. And the guy's like, ah, no. You now know his loyalty. And so now David's in a tight, 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 tight spot. He's in checkmate by this king. 
You know, he says, uh, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. And David said, then you can see for yourself what your servant can do. He knows what the servant can do. Kill the giant from that guy's own town. He's fully aware of what he can do. Uh, I want you to realize there could be a double meaning in what David's saying right now. Because I don't know, I don't know, I'm hoping that David would, he's not going to fight his own people. But you can read a double meaning like, yeah, he may be looking this king right in the eye like, yeah, let's go to war. And you'll see exactly what I can do. And I don't know if he's going to flank and he's going to take down on the Philistines or if he's going to go ahead and just go kill Saul. And if you're watching this movie play in your mind, you're like, I don't know which way it's going down. I don't know if David's going to truly stay in line with this Philistine king and kill his own people or if he's going to turn on him in battle. Who, what's going to happen? Keep reading on. He says, very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. That phrase is really interesting in Hebrew. Bodyguard for life. Okay, what's this guy king of? What's the name of the town? Name of the town is king of. Gath. Okay, who's from Gath? Goliath. Goliath. What does David do to Goliath? Kills him. As soon as he kills him, what's he do? Cuts off his head. The phrase he uses, bodyguard for life, you're going to love this. This is awesome. In Hebrew, it means guard of my head. Exactly what that means in Hebrew. He basically says, you can be the guard of my head. Basically says, I mean, I'm leaving this king, and you wonder what, what, the, what the look is in their eyes right, right now. I wonder what's going on between this king and David because he goes, I trust you to guard my neck. I trust you to guard my head. Didn't work out so well for Goliath, but I trust that's going to work out for me. I love the subtle nature of that phrase. And we read it as bodyguard, and we miss a little bit of the, the deeper resonance of what, what the author's doing now. When this guy says, I'll let you guard my head. That's an immense amount of trust considering what David did to their champion. Immense amount of trust. I love that part of the story. I don't know why. Now, Samuel is dead. This is the part I want to get to. This is the weird part. And all Israel mourned for him and buried him in his own land of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and the spiritists from the land. All right. Mediums and spiritists. Okay? First of all, good thing. They should have been expelled. That's a law back in Deuteronomy. They were supposed to be run out. Okay? Whether, you know, mediums are, you know, talking to people that are, that, that are formally, you know, that, that are dead, or spiritists talking to demonic, you know, talking to demons. You know, look at, at that being kind of the differentiating point between those two. One is talking to people who are formerly dead. The other is talking to actual demons, demonic spirits. Um, we live in a culture where, like, oh, that's not real. Man, there, there are ample opportunities in Scripture where you realize that your, your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and, you know, forces in heavenly realms. You realize that, that Colossians talks about, you know, you know that, that Jesus comes to... You know, talks about the, the things that are seen and the things that are invisible. You live in a world where there is a dimension that you cannot see. And, and a lot of times we don't feel comfortable thinking and talking about that. We want to say things that, that are so crazy like, well, no, Jesus, you know, he died, you know, and, and he was buried, he resurrected, and he has conquered Satan, and Satan is no longer here, and he has expelled all that. No, 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 no. No, this is a very real spiritual realm that we live in. Things go on around you every day. Things that go on around me every day that we we cannot always understand. This is one of those texts that is incredibly real, but incredibly weird. It's bizarre. 
and we just got to work our way through it, and I don't know that I can ever explain it to your satisfaction because I can't figure it out to my own satisfaction. I just kind of go, huh, that's weird. And that's one of the moments in Scripture where I kind of got to scratch my head a little bit and go, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I'm, I think that's a little bizarre, and it is. Here we go. Um, <clears throat> so Saul kicks out all the mediums and spirits. He kicks them all out, runs them out. So they pretty much go over to pagan Philistine territory. Um, so the Philistines assembled and came up against camp. And Paul was, uh, Saul was terrified, terror filled his heart. Verse 6, he inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. By dreams or of a prophet. Now, let's keep that in mind. Why can't God answer him by any of those things? He killed them all. You know, there's only one left, Abiathar, and all we know is he, he took an ephod. That's all he had. And so I don't know if Saul still has the herb and therm. We can get into what those are. They're basically things that, that, that a priest could use to ask whether or not God says yes or God says no. Um, you know, some people, we don't get into what they were. It's, we'll be here all night trying to talk about that. We don't actually know exactly what they were. But basically, you know, almost like pulling out lots, you could pull one of these out uh, and it would tell you yes or no, and only a priest could do it. Well, of course Saul can't do this. He's, he's killed everyone there is. Samuel is now dead. You know, he's, he's, he's in a bad spot. And the only other prophet Gad is with David. So we know that David has a prophet in Abiathar. He's got, a, I mean, a priest in Abiathar. He's got a prophet in Gad, and he's a future king. Remember, we talked about all of those being aligned with David. And we know that any time that God's tried to speak to Saul, he doesn't listen to him anyway. Go all the way back to the Malachites, when he was supposed to destroy everything there, and he didn't do it. Never did it. Didn't obey God. And I think sometimes people wonder, like, man, I've been talking to God, and I feel like I can't hear anything. I feel like God's not talking to me. I think sometimes you have to step back. Not every time. But I know sometimes in my life I've got to step back and say, wait a second, has God already spoken to me on this issue? Yeah, it, it's kind of like my kids sometimes. <laughs> I'll, use, I'll use Cy, my youngest, as an example. Love that boy. But he will ask me the same question 1,000 times. In 1,000, no, 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 not even, the same way. Let's not even give him grace. Let's not even give him, let's not even give him creativity. He'll ask me the same question over and over and over. And at some point, I have to look at him and go, I've already given you an answer. Okay? And I'm tired of talking about this. Don't ask me again. I forgot. Then stop forgetting. Stop asking the same stupid question. I'm tired of it. No, you cannot have whatever it is that you want right now. It's just, you're not eating donuts five minutes before dinner. No, you may not have a donut. No, you still can't have a donut. No, you're not. Stop asking the question. You know, and at some point, it's like, well, why don't you just give me an answer? I did give you an answer. At this moment... God's already given us Saul an answer about his kingdom. He's already told Saul the way it's going to play out. And I think God's going, Saul, I've answered you. Saul, I've already told you that in the same way you try to tear, you know, tear Samuel's robe off of him, that your kingdom was going, to be, was going to be torn from you. I've already told you that I've stripped the kingdom from you. You're fully aware of this, Saul. And so don't be surprised. Don't feel bad for Saul when it says he inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. Um, he says, find me a woman who's a medium that I may go inquire of her. There's one in Endor. Endor is an interesting place. I always talk about pulling out some of the names of these towns. This witch of Endor. Alright? Endor was on the far side of Philistine country. Okay? So when you're about to see what he's about to do, where, what he's going to have to do to get there, this would have been a dark of night, highly secretive, the king of Israel sneaking through Philistine country to go talk to a witch. Is the way this is going to play out. Um... 
And I want to make fun of it. I want to pull out Princess Bride quotes, but I feel like it's highly inappropriate because this is legit. And I, and I don't want to be, as much as I want to have, you know, fun with the text and, and be silly, this probably isn't the best place for me to do that because it, it's actually a terrifying thing that takes place for Saul. Um, he says, one endorse, so Saul disguised himself putting on uh, other clothes. Uh, and at night, he and two other men went to the woman. He says, consult the spirit for me, he said, and bring up the one I name. But the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. I don't think she knows who he is yet. She's like, uh, surely you know what Saul has done. She can probably tell by the way he's speaking. I'm sure he doesn't sound like a Philistine. I'm sure the language and the dialect, she knows exactly. You know, but I don't know if she knows who he is yet. He says, he's cut off mediums and spirits from the land. Uh, why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? And Saul swore to her by the Lord. You're consulting a woman who calls up demons and the dead, and you're swearing by the name of Yahweh. You are one jacked up individual right now, invoking a holy name in a very evil space. Hmm. Aye, aye, aye. He says, the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel. All right, now listen. I'm telling you this is about to get weird. Because we don't like the fact that some witch is about to bring up a prophet from the dead. And we don't like the fact that we're like, wait a second, this can't go down. In fact, some of you are like, I'm reading ahead right now. I'm not waiting. If you've not read this text, let's just keep reading because it gets interesting. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Okay, few things here. A lot of times we look at Spiritists and mediums in our own culture, and we think a few different things. We think either they are fake, like some sort of charlatan just trying to make a few bucks, or we think they are incredibly real and that they have immense power. And, and somewhere, biblically, in the middle of those two, I, I don't want to use the word power. I would say ability. Uh, power belongs to the Lord. I don't like the word I use there. And, and in between there is, is some truth. When we talk about people who are able to tap into a spiritual realm, uh, I, I want to let you know that I believe that is absolutely possible. Uh, man, I've traveled enough overseas, and I've seen enough things that have absolutely rocked my world in terms of demonic influence. I don't believe she's calling up a demon right now. I think God allows this to happen. I think God says, God's watching this whole thing now, and he says, you want sin. <laughs> you want sin. You want Samuel. All right. And then God says, I'm going to let you speak to Samuel. Now, whether or not this is actually Samuel, or whether or not God is just in some sort of apparition of, of Samuel, he's putting him forth out there, I, I don't know. We have no reason to think it's not actually Samuel. What in the world we're supposed to do with that theologically, I don't know. That's just straight crazy. It's just, it gets worse. Let's keep going. He says, the king said to her, he says, don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a spirit coming up out of the ground. What does he look like, he asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Okay, that's a big deal. Why is that a big deal? Why is it a big deal? Old man wearing a robe is coming up. Why is it a big deal? Anybody know? Someone would take a stab at it. That's how Samuel approached Saul. 
The last time you really see Samuel and Saul interacting is when Samuel tells Saul, the kingdom is taken from you. And what does does Saul do? He falls down, grabs a hole in his robe, and rips it. And basically God, Samuel says, in the same way you've torn that, your kingdom's going to be torn from you. And there's an interesting thing, because the last time that these boys were together, there was Samuel, Saul, in a row. The next time they're together, there's Samuel, Saul, in a row. This is a really interesting, artfully crafted, great, great writing that's being pulled out here. It's beautiful what the Holy Spirit's done here. Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me. And God has turned away from me. He no longer answered me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what to do. And Samuel said, Why do you consult me? Now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy, the Lord has done what he predicted through me. He's already told you it's going to go down. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. I'm trying to think if this is the first official time that Saul's been told. I can't remember it in the text. You might remember a time that he's been told it was David. I think he knows. But I'm trying to think if this is the first official time he's been told. I don't know. I need to go back to and study that again. He says, because you did not obey uh, the Lord or carry out the fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will hand you uh, over both Israel and you to the Philistines. And tomorrow... You and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. Immediately, Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's word. His strength was gone, for he had not eaten, for he had eaten nothing all that day and night. Um, we'll get into what she does here in just a second. We're not going to talk about a lot. So here's the deal. Um, this whole thing with, with Samuel, I, I don't know what to make of it. I don't know. I'll just say this. I believe that it's real. I believe that that happened. Uh, and I believe that God allowed this to happen. There's not a new... Huh? No, I think what that means, the word shield there, uh, it would have been the word shield, but we would have a different understanding because of Jesus' writings versus somebody writing this in, 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 uh, in what would have been the time this was written. It would have been literally up for the place where people are buried. Well, Samuel was saying that you and your sons will be with me today. Yeah, in the grave. You'll be dead like me, is what that means. What I wouldn't want to do is draw in issues of like, well, is this purgatory? Is this hell? Is this... I don't think it's getting any of that. It's getting basically into this concept of you're going to be dead like me. Does that make sense? You're going to be in the grave like me. Um, I, I don't know that it's getting into any of the stuff alluded to in the New Testament as much. But yeah, it's, it's a complex text. That's my opinion. And that's worth what you pay for it, uh, which is nothing. But it's a complex text. It, it, it's one of those ones I'm like, I told Ragsdale, I was like, why didn't you cover this? What I would say is, I love the fact that it gives us, I love when Scripture still makes me uncomfortable. I love when Scripture still makes me uncomfortable. What? It's crazy. It is bothersome, and I love it for that reason. I love it that it, it makes us go. What I would say is that I believe that I believe that when you call up the dead, and, and 
in Scripture, outside of this time, is demonic. And we don't find any other text. The only other text I can find where dead men come back, literally, would be the transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. And at that moment, all you find is, we don't hear anything they say. We don't hear anything they talk about. All you find at that moment is a voice from heaven saying, listen to him talk about Jesus. And I think in that moment, God says, I'm going to allow Moses and Elijah in this moment of transfiguration. Remember that text? Transfiguration? There's a moment where you have Moses and Elijah, you know, two other great prophets that do this. And they're there to testify to God's will. I think in this moment, God allows Samuel to do this. In the same way he allowed Moses and he allowed Elijah at the transfiguration, I think he allows it right now. I can't find any other text in Scripture where God allows that. There's times where Lazarus, if you remember that text in the New Testament, where he wants to go back and warn his brothers, you know, about where, you know, like, hey man, don't do this. And he's like, no, your time is over. You can't, not Lazarus, it's the other Lazarus. Not Lazarus resurrected. It's the other story in Scripture. And he's like, no, he says, you're not going to be able to go back. You can't do that. So in my mind, the only time where contact with the dead occurs, and I need to go through, and somebody listens to this podcast, they're going to study it out, and they're going to find other texts that I'm not thinking of right now. But the only time I can find where an actual person is allowed to, it's because God allows it. Does that make sense? God allows it with Samuel, he allows it with Moses, and he'll allow it with Elijah. That's it. I don't know of any of the times I can think of a scripture where, where someone dead comes back to speak or act on God's behalf or even outside of God's behalf. If anybody can think of one, let me know. Anybody got one you can think of right now? I can't think of one. And so, but I do know that there are many times where demonic spirits interact with this world. Now, you'll find that on several occasions. You know, there'll, there'll be an evil spirit that, that plays out on, on me. And you'll find that throughout Daniel. You'll find that, you know, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. Um, that the, the, the forces of evil in, in spiritual realms are legitimate and real. And if you're living in your theology in a place where you don't believe in demonic forces, man, you are greatly missing and misunderstanding the world you live in. Forces of evil are incredibly real. And so when I talk about, you know, the stories that I told on some of those trips, what I felt was an absolute spiritual oppression that was absolute evil and demonic. And in those moments, I felt God intervene. In this moment, God takes an incredible evil woman who pursues evil and yet brings out something godly and uses even something incredibly evil to accomplish his purpose. And I'm like, and I think this woman cries out at the top of her voice because she's not used to this. This, whoa, 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 this doesn't happen. It freaks her out. Enough that you see her own words. Uh, it says, uh, you know, it says, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. I think she's scared out of her mind because this doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. Anytime it's, anytime it's somebody else, it's been somebody, you know, you know, it's been an, an evil spirit. It's been something demonic. And in this moment, she's now seeing something godly. And it absolutely terrifies her. And she's like, what? This doesn't happen. And it freaks her out. So again, what I would say about this text is, I don't know what to do with it. Doing the best I can do to handle it and saying, i got a lot more questions than I've got answers. And it baffles my brain. Scott, is that you back there? Oh, that was Scott. I was going to ask Scott's going to take over the text. Um, so there we go. We're going to leave that. We can probably talk about it all night, but I just don't know what else to do with it. Um, so let's get into uh, the rest of this text. Uh, 
What time we got? Who am I at? Oh, my word. We still got three chapters to cover. Chapter 29. So, uh, some things play out. She, makes, she basically makes Saul this big, big dinner. Um, some cool parallels between uh, Saul and Jesus right now and their last meal. You know, where we're, Jesus eats this last meal in utter peace, knowing that he's going to die to bring about life. You know, knowing that he's going to die fulfilling God's purpose. Saul's about to eat his last meal in a place of wickedness knowing that he's about to be taken from this world because, because of evil, because he didn't fulfill God's purposes. And uh, as we get to chapter 29, uh, the Philistines gather their forces uh, at Aphek. I want to talk about that real quick. Uh, man, Jesus, help me recall. Go back, and I'm guessing, uh, Lord, help me remember. Let's try chapter 4. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Oh, Lord, let this be right. Uh, come on now. Here we go. Thank you, Jesus. The only reason I remember that is because of 5 Eli. Okay, so watch what's happening right now. First battle. First time that we ever meet the Philistines. First time we ever went through this study. Check out what's going on. Chapter 4, verse 2. Uh, verse 1, it says, Now the Israelites went to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines at Aphek. Okay, now let's roll on. Let's check out verse 29. Back to chapter 29. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek. What is that telling you? Not just about that town. Look beyond the name of the town. What's it telling you about Saul? What are you figuring out about Saul? He's not thinking about the past. Okay. Alright. I would look at it and say he has done nothing to establish Israelite's domain. And it's interesting the foreshadowing. Let's go back to the battle effect the very first time. And what happens? Israelites, what do they take into battle? What are they taking into battle? Let's just kind of refresh the story. Take the Ark of the Covenant, alright? Eli's two boys, what are their names? Remember the two boys out of Eli? Hophni and? Yeah, Phineas, Phineas, yeah. Two boys go in. What happens to the two boys at the Battle of Aphek? They get killed. What happens to fat Eli? Falls over and he dies. So you got a dad and boys die through this battle of Philistines. It's interesting. The writer, again, look what he's doing. So beautiful, so creative, so perfect. He shows the story at the very beginning. When we, the first time we meet the Philistine effect, you've got an ineffectual leader in Eli who's not following God, who's allowing everything from prostitution to idolatry to all kinds of things that are just jacked up, happening in the temple. He's not being an effective leader over Israel. His boys are out of control. And now all of a sudden you find another leader at the very end of this book at the same town who's every bit as ineffectual, every bit as poor of a leader as Eli taking his boys into battle. All of his boys but one. Okay? All of his boys but one. Let's keep going. It says, As the list of rulers marched, uh, David and his men were marching at the rear. He says, The commanders of the listing says... Uh, what about these Hebrews? Now you can imagine if you're just a soldier and you're going in to fight the Israelites ahead of you and all of a sudden you've got 600 Israelites behind you. Now just be a bit of a general or, or a military strategist right now. What's going through your mind? You're flanked. I'm like, I don't care what this guy's done. Like, 
they're going into battle and they're marching and the dust is coming off their feet and there's rumbling going on. They're like, these Hebrews are going with us to fight the Hebrews? What are we doing here? Why have we got these guys with us? And so, you know, the, uh, the king replies, is, is this not David, who was an officer of Saul, the king of Israel? He's already been with me for over a year. And from the day he left Saul until now, I found no fault in him. But the Philistine commanders were angry with him and said, send the man back that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle or will turn against us during the fighting. Um, how better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of our own men? In this David, they sang about, or they know the song. Remember the song? Saul has slain his thousands, David has tens of thousands. You know, one of the guys like, yeah, one of those guys is my brother, you know, my cousin. He's not going to the battle with us. Oops, sorry. He says, so, uh, so Achish called David and said to him, as sure as the Lord lives, you've been reliable. He basically sends David back. Uh, he says, uh, uh, turn back in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. David says, but what have I done? He says, what have you found against your servant from the day I came into you until now? Because you don't know, David, you've been lying. <laughs> David, you've been sneaking around. You know, he's, I think when David says that, don't hear, you know, some righteous guy. David's not been a liar. You know, when he says that, that whole thing, he says, but what have I done? What a stupid rhetorical question. If the king only knew, he'd have your head right now. Oh, what have you done? You've been lying to me for a year, David. You've been slaughtering my people, and you've been slaughtering my allies, David. That's what you've been doing. You know, David's like, what have I done? A lot. He just doesn't know anything about it because you're killing everyone. He says, uh, what have you found against your servant? And I think, I wonder if David's fishing a bit right now. Well, you know, hey, man, what do you know? You know, trying to figure out some way to guise that question. You know, from the day I came to you until now, why can't I go get against fight? Why can't I go against? Why, why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? Now, there's a double way you can take that right there. Double way you can take that. When he says fight against the enemies of my Lord the King, who's my Lord the King? We don't know how David's going to play out. Maybe what the Philistine rulers are picking up on is David's actual plan. Maybe they can sense it. Maybe they see it in their eyes. You know, maybe it's that fear we talked about earlier where they're like, something's not right here. David may be saying, I'm going to fight against the enemies of my Lord the King. Because you've got to understand, every time he could have hurt Saul, what does he call Saul? I will not lift my hand against who? The Lord's anointed. I won't do it. He would never lift his hand. If David wanted to kill Saul, he could have already done it. Could have done it in the cave, could have done it behind the rock, he had ample opportunities so when he says that phrase, I kind of like to play with that a little bit and think, uh, why can't I go get fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? And, uh, and I wonder at this point, as this discussion is going down, if all of a sudden the Philistine rulers are surrounding David and Achish is like, don't make a scene here, bud. Don't you make a scene. Just go back home. Just go back home. What plays out right now is one of those gracious things that God could have done for several different reasons. Number one, the immense sin. For David to lift his hand against Saul would have been wrong. For him to fight and slaughter his own people would have been absolutely, absolutely wrong. But again, God protects him even on another front. He protects him. I mean, you think about how does David become king of Israel if the way he conquers Saul is by killing Israelites? How in the world does that breed trust? How does that breed loyalty within Israel? It would have set him up in a colossal way. So these Israelite these Philistine kings are doing David a favor, and, and I think David takes the escape, the escape clause, and God actually spares David. He says, I know that you can please my eyes as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said he can't go us a battle. 
Uh, verse 11, so David's men got up early in the morning. They go back to the land of the, Je- uh, the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. David's men reach Ziklag on the third day. Okay, so they're quite a ways out. He says, now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag, and they attacked Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the women and all who were in it. Now, first of all, a little more gracious with David's people than David was with their people. Let's just notice that. He captures the women and everyone in it. David slaughtered the women and everyone in it. And so the fact that God allows for some reason uh, the Amalekites to not slaughter them is interesting. He says, both young and old, they killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. Interesting. Because if you understand the Amalekites, keep in mind, what do we first know about the Amalekites and why are they, what are one of the reasons the Israelites hate them? Anybody remember? They were always attacked. Yeah. When the, when the Israelites left Egypt, it was the Amalekites that had the raiding parties that they would come in as they're on the Exodus. The Amalekites would sneak in and they would pick off the old and the weak. So what God's even doing to the Amalekites right now is not their DNA. It's just not who they are. They're a vicious people. And the fact that it even says they killed none of them but carried them off as they went on their way, the young and the old, that's not the Amalekite way. God is indeed giving provision for David right now. He's protecting him in a huge way. He says, when David's men came to Ziklag, they found the city served by fire, and their wives and son and daughters taken captive. So David's men wept aloud until they had no, uh, no strength left to weep. Now watch this. This is interesting. David's two wives were captured. David's greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Can you feel the tide turn right now? Man, this whole thing where these guys have rallied him, this rough and tumble crew of outlaws that came to him in the caves are the same men now saying, Bud, we're going to kill you right now. They're talking, they're literally having a discussion as David is falling down on his face with no strength left, you'll find in that same position with Bathsheba later on uh, when the baby dies. But right now, he's flat on his face crying, and the 600 men are like, we're going to kill him. We're going to kill him. You brought us here. You're going to take us out to fight our own people. And now here we are, our wives. And think about it. From their perspective, we know because the writers told us that the people are alive. Do they have any idea that their wives and kids are still alive? Maybe because they're not there, because they can't find any of them. But at the same time, they know what they've been doing. They know every time they raided, what do they do? They slaughtered everything. So they see their life, well, they're wondering, like, what's happening? Are they slaughtering our children and our wives right now? And they're like, we can't find them. They're looking for dead bodies, and they're not there. And so they're like, are they just captive? What's happening? These guys are, are a bit panicked. And then David said to Abiathar, now here we go. Here's the shift. Here's the shift. Go back real quick. Hold your spot there in chapter 30. Shift real quick to verse 27. Chapter 27 again. Remember what it said, but David thought to himself. The priest was with him. The priest, Abiathar was there. But all of a sudden, you find in chapter 30, he goes back. And he says, but David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of him, like, bring me the ephod. That's the turning point. This is the turning point in David. When he says, bring me the ephod. This is when it starts. His heart and this is why I think God says of David, he's a man after my own heart. It's because even in the midst of sin, even in the midst of stupidity, David's heart is always drawn back to pursue God, pursue Him, to listen to Him. And I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in the guilt of our sin. Remember, 
I love what Romans 6 1. Should we go on saying that grace may increase by no means? You know, you died to sin. How can you live it any longer? We, we know that we should not sin just so God can show His grace. All right? We, we get the logic of that. But at the same time, do you not understand that in the midst of your sin, when you turn to God, that God takes joy in your repentance? God takes joy when you will turn to Him and say you're wrong. But you guys, you guys are parents. Do you take joy when you've got a child? Now, I'm not talking about it like, I'm sorry. But I'm talking about when your kid, on those rare occasions, shows like legitimate true remorse, legitimate true sorrow, and you know it's real because you're a parent and you can see it and you know this is true right now. But what does your heart feel in that moment? One, tenderness, compassion. You may still execute, I shouldn't execute <laughs> You may, you may still give discipline, uh, but, but at some point, there's a joy in you because you see a brokenness. And, and, and that's the glimpse of you that is a lot like your father. And yeah, I think David is disappointing God over and over. What God loves about David is that moment when he says, listen, man, I have made a mess of this, guys. Bring me the ephah. Bring me the ephah. And that's the moment when others turn to David. He doesn't say first, bring me my sword. He doesn't say, let's go get him. I think what these guys do is they see something in David's worth following. They see a spiritual leader. But David says, stop. Everybody stop crying. Bring me the ephod right now. Biathar, where is it? Bring the ephod. And it's more than just bring me a garment. It's, it's an attitude of humility. It's an attitude of saying, I need to be before God right now. We're not in a good place. I know you want to kill me. Kill me if you're going to, but bring me the ephod. I'm going to inquire of God. Abiathar brought it to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them. He knows all that. Um, he says, uh, David and 600 men with him. Uh, they come to the ravine. Some men stay behind. Uh, for 200 men were too exhausted. And he said, uh, To cross the ravine. But David and 400 men continued to pursue. That'll be important later on. He says, I found an Egyptian in a field, and they brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat. Uh, they give this guy, this Egyptian, some food. This Egyptian basically tells him, he says, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master, my master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. Uh, we raided the Negev of the Kurites. Basically, it says in Ziklag. David said, can you lead me down to this raiding party? Uh, he answered, swear to before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I'll take you down to them. So he led David down. Uh, where they're scattered all over the countryside, eating and drinking. So this, this Amalekite master won't give the Egyptian food, but we know they've got food because they've been raiding everywhere. So I don't know what it is with this Amalekite master, this Egyptian, and I'm going to go into the world of absolute. I live in a world of speculation a lot of this text. Uh, Lord, help me remember where this is. I want to point out something that I think is interesting. Um, oh, Lord, help me remember where it is. Oh, Jesus, help me remember. So I gotta, I'm trying to find a text here that I had not planned, I wasn't planning to bring out. Oh, whoa, 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 I'm in the wrong. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Um, oh, where is it? Sorry, if you're listening to the podcast, my bad. I'm trying to bring up a text here I hadn't planned on bringing up. All right, I can't find it. I'm not going to lose it then. All right, let's move on. So he takes this Egyptian. Egyptian shows him how to find him. 
They get there, all their wives, everyone's okay. Uh, we got to fast forward because most stuff I want to cover in Saul's death. They find him, they get their livestock, uh, and they say that, you know, he says he took all the flocks and herds that his men drove ahead uh, of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. When David came to the 200 men who had too, been too exhausted, if you don't know this text, this is, you think about the American mindset. How does an American handle this moment right now? How, was, how, how does a typical American handle this moment? You come with, you've got all this plunder, and understand, it's not just the plunder from Ziklag. They've been raiding all over. They got lots of plunder. They got women and children that they're not even, they're like trying to figure out who they belong to. They got cattle from sheep, all kinds of things from everywhere. This is a big bunch of plunder that they capture right now. And you got the 200 guys, the 200 guys who are too tired to move on. Our attitude here is hey, dude, you didn't show up, you don't get it. You know, too tired. You know, you weren't there. It's ours. You know, losers, weepers, finders, keepers type thing. You lose, you snooze, you lose. You're out of luck. Should have been there. When I, when I read it, I just read that this week, and I was like, what are you doing? Like, being a girl, uh, I'm like, so you're waiting for like 400 men are meeting up with their family. Yeah. You get back to your husband, you're like, you were tired. <laughs> you were tired. That's funny. I thought of it. I was like, you, and then I felt really bad when I read the rest of it, but that yeah. was. That was my thought. Like, everybody else's men, like, yeah. rest away. Wives are hugging their husbands. You were tired. Yeah, you, you were too, too they tired. They captured us, but you were tired. I can imagine <laughs> what the next, next month or two of relationships going to be like. Yeah, I'm tired, honey. Tired. I'm tired. That's what that's going to be like. <laughs> that is a great, great insight. Love that. He says, uh, says the David came to the 200 men uh, who had been too exhausted to follow him who were left behind at the ravine, uh, and they came out to meet David and the people with him. And as David has been approached, he greeted them. Oh, I love that. Love that. What a good sign of David as a leader. He, 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 most leaders would have been so cocky and arrogant in this moment what they did. And David just goes up and says, Fellas! He, does not, he doesn't want a moment of animosity. He doesn't want a moment of tension. He just like, come on, guys, I know you're tired. He knows how many times these guys have been battled with him, how many times they've raided with him. And, and maybe David's looking at these guys going, man, if these guys are tired, i got to listen to them. i got to listen. They just can't do it. And, and I imagine, and, and maybe it was hard for these guys and to, to say they couldn't go. I, I don't know what the reasons were, but I love the fact that David greets them. What a beautiful thing. And, uh, and man, I, I think that you can imagine the failure they had to feel and I don't know if you've ever been to that point where you've let someone down or you didn't deliver how you should have and then you've got to be in their presence for the first time. Ooh, that just stinks. That's just no fun at all. And, and David does a beautiful thing where he just de-escalates attention immediately and just greets them. Just greets them like they're, like they're, like they're, you know, they're friends. He says, David had been approaching, greeted them. Uh, but all the evil men and troublemakers about David's followers said... Because it, I love the fact that it says they're evil men and troublemakers. And I also love the fact that those are the guys that are willing to go with David. It just shows. They were tough. Um, he says, because they didn't go with us, we will not share with them the plunder. We recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. Uh, I think, I don't want her. <laughs> I don't know what it was. But I don't want to feed their, their wife and kids. They can have them, but the plunder's ours. Uh, he says, and Dave replied, no, my brothers. You must not do that. 
with what the Lord has given us. David just gives credit to God. Uh, he says he's protected us and handed over us a force that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to battle. All will share alike. David meant this a statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. I love the fact that David doesn't let a caste system develop right now. He says whether you're a soldier that's on the front lines or whether you're somebody who's on the supply side, who's taking care of things, we're all going to be treated equal here. We're going to be treated equal. Um, then David wrote a Ziklag. Uh, he said, sell the plunder to the elders of Judah. What a brilliant thing. What a brilliant thing. Think, that's just straight up politics now. Straight up politics is what he's doing now. Think about it from David's standpoint. You know, he's got these 200 guys who are just grateful. And then he takes some of the plunder and he sends it to Judah. Maybe it's because some of their towns were raided. But I love the fact that he says he sends it to the elders of Judah. Okay? My guess is that the chapter we just read and the final chapter we're going to read are probably happening at about the same time. I don't know what David knows about Saul yet. I think they happen concurrently. So what David does here is either, it's a political move either way, and it's brilliant either way. Um, he says, here's a present for you for the plunder of the Lord's enemies. Um, let's, let's jump on down, uh, down to verse 31. It says, now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the Israelites fled before them. And many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons. And they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchior. Hurts my heart when Jonathan dies. I like that guy. And if you can allow the sound of blades to clash in your ears, if you can allow the dust to choke your throat just a bit, if you can see the mass of Philistines closing in on Jonathan as he's holding the sword, swinging with everything he's got, you can... You know Jonathan's not afraid of a fight. He's already climbed the cliff to pick a fight with Philistines when he was outnumbered. And I don't know if his dad has told him going into battle, you're going to die today, son. I talked to a witch. I don't know. Jonathan probably had no idea. I can't imagine what it would have been like for Jonathan to go into battle if David had actually gone with the Philistines. can't imagine the grief he would have felt to have to face his best friend in battle. But let that moment resonate for just a second with the clash of swords, the screaming of men in this moment when the sword comes down on Jonathan. And it collapses in a pool of blood on the ground. And my heart breaks because I just like him. We don't know much about the other boys, but they die too. And then we find this moment. And Saul said, it says, The fighting grew fierce around Saul when the archers overtook him and they wounded him critically. But his armor bearer is terrified. Oh, wait. Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and run me through. For these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. The only time that phrase uncircumcised fellows is the third time that it gets used by the author. First time they said uncircumcised fellow was David about Goliath. The second time is Jonathan scaling the cliff 
and the third time now is Saul as the Philistines come against him. And those are three epic battles right now. And this is an epic battle. But his own bear was terrified and would not do it. I don't know why. Maybe it's for the exact same reason that David would. You don't lift your hand against the Lord's anointing. It's like, I'm not going to kill you. And he said, or maybe he thought the word would get out, somebody would see him, and if he kills the king, he's a dead man. You just don't kill the king. He says, Brazon uh, is terrifying and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. This is one of the three moments in Scripture where you, uh, you see a suicide uh, play out. And uh, you know, this moment where Saul takes his own life. And he falls on the sword, kills himself, and then when his armor bearer saw, saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on the sword uh, and died with him. And I don't know if you all saw the same sword. That's what I'm guessing. Um, but at this moment, Philistines are charging in on this kid. He's got the same office that David once held, armor bearer to the king. And he just says, he just falls on the sword as well and dies. He says, so Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all of the men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled, just like they did in chapter 4, and the Saul and his sons had died, just like Eli and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. So now at this point, they own less territory than they've ever owned. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons falling out of Gilboa. Check this out. They cut off his head. What does that remind you of? Goliath. They cut off his head. The Philistines cut off his head. They sent messengers throughout the land of Philistines to proclaim the news of the temple, their idols, and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Asher. What's that remind you of? Remember what David did to Goliath? Took his armor, put it in his tent, took the sword, put it in the, gave it to a priest. They're mocking. They're flat out mocking right now. And they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shem. They basically just, I don't know, they're at the equivalent of almost crucifying him or putting his body. Somehow they attached this dead, headless body, as morbid as it is, of the king to this wall. You've got to understand, in, in this culture, you wouldn't, even if you, if you had any respect whatsoever, you would have at least treated a body of a, of a dead king with dignity. What they do now is just so disrespectful, and they're just rubbing the Israelites' face in it. Uh, I, I find this next thing really, really interesting, and I'm hoping I can find that part of the text. Um, here we go. Um, if you remember, it says, When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men joined throughout... Uh, all their, all their valiant men journeyed throughout the night to Bethshan, and they took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the, wall, from the wall, and they went to Jabesh where they buried them. Why would Jabesh, the men of Jabesh Gilead do that? Why would the valiant men, not even an army, just a group of guys, and I don't know how many valiant men there were, we have no idea, but they, they didn't forget Beautiful what they do here. I love these guys at Jabesh Gilead. Why would they do that? Anybody know? Go back to chapter 11. Didn't he fight for them? He did. Go back to chapter 11 real quick. You're dead on right. 
pretty sure it's chapter 11. Yeah. Verse uh, chapter 1, Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. All the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us and we'll be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite said, I'll make a treaty with you, only on condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on Israel. The elders said to him, Give us seven days. We'll send messenger out throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, remember that, uh, we will surrender you. They went to give you a solid report of the terms. They all looked aloud. We just saw him turn the field behind his oxen. He asked, this is one of the first things that Saul will do to set himself apart, is he rescues these boys. He shows up, and when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power. One of those times, one of the early times, one of the first times the Spirit of God comes on Saul. And he said he burned with anger. Took a pair of oxen, cut them to pieces, assembles an army. And he told the messengers, he said, said the, the, the men of Jabesh Gilead in verse 9, he says, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you'll be delivered. And when the message went report, they were elated. And, uh, and then you see that right after that, he's confirmed as king. These boys never forgot. They never forgot. Every time they had two eyes to look and see the sunrise, they never forgot what Saul did for them. And I just love this endearing picture of these men valiantly making it, traveling all through the night into Philistine country territory, because it's pretty much all Philistine territory at this point. They value this place. They go into their darkness, and they take the bodies down off the wall. And I, I just, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful story, even though it's morbid and gross. He says, uh, they went to bench where they burned them. Uh, I think they burned them probably because their bodies had been so disgraced that it was just, it was just the right thing to do. They had just tortured these bodies and just done horrible things with them. He says, and they took their bones and they buried them under a tarmac tree. If you remember how many times we've seen Saul sitting at the tree making stupid decisions. He says, uh, at Jabesh, and they fasted for seven days. Uh, an interesting note uh, is that eventually uh, David will later, uh, if you've got it, turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 21 real quick. One of these that David will do is kind of a beautiful thing. 2 Samuel 21, 12 through 14. Uh, where is it? Um, it says uh, he went uh, and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh Gilead um, they had taken them secretly from public square of Bethshan uh, where the Philistines had hung them oh, I, I forgot they took them from public square I think it was just the outside of the wall he says David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there and the bones of those uh, who had been killed or exposed or gathered up they buried the bones of Saul and his sons in the tomb of Saul's father Kish and I love the fact that one of, one of the things that David does shortly before he dies is he does a really respectful thing for Saul. He says, man, we're not going to leave you. I know we had our issues. I'm not going to leave you in Jabesh Gilead. And he takes the bones of David. He takes, I mean, he takes the bones of Saul, takes the bones of, of, of Jonathan, takes the bone of all the boys, and he brings them to a place of honor is one of the lessons that, that he does. Um, you know, you notice the difference between Saul. In Jesus right now. And I think it's an interesting moment. Both of them, uh, you, you see this juxtaposed tension between Jesus completely fulfilling the will of God and surrendering his life. You see Saul in opposition completely neglecting the will of God and taking his life. Uh, you see this tension between even a Saul and a Judas in, in, in the fact that in their denial and their you know, and they're, they're turning their backs on God and both of them taking their own life. It's just, just a great book. Uh, you know, we didn't even get into the fact, 
how much time we got? Uh, we're, I, I'll hit two things I thought were also kind of cool. Uh, think where they are. And uh, let's turn all the way back to the very beginning uh, of chapter. Where's Hannah's song? Hannah's prayer. Um, uh, where's that verse at? I want to point out something that was really kind of cool. If you read it, we're going to look at Hannah's prayer, and I want you to reflect on First Samuel. He said, "My heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord my heart is lifted high. My mouth boasts over enemies, for I delight in deliverance. Uh, there is no one holy like the Lord." There's no one beside you like the rock, our God. Uh, so don't keep talking proudly or allow your mouth to be such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows. And by Him, deeds are weighed. Think of Saul. The bows of the warriors are broken, and those who stumble are armed with strength. For those who hire themselves out for food, uh, those, those who are full hire themselves out for food, those who are hungry, hunger no more. She was barren, has borne seven children, uh, she has many sons, pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave, and I always think of Samuel right now, and he raises up. The Lord's in poverty and wealth, he humbles, he exalts, he raises the poor from dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap, thinking of David. He seats him with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor, thinking of David. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's, upon them he has set the world. He guard the feet of the saints. But the wickets, the wicked will be silenced in darkness. Think about Saul before the witch. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. Think of Saul. He'll thunder against them from heaven. I think about the arrows coming down out of the sky. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He'll give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointing. It's interesting that you, you start this story out. The book opens with Samuel's birth. There's hope, there's an answer to prayer, and it closes with death and despair and an act of divine judgment. It's, it's this whole book of transition. It contrasts a, a rule of God and a rule of man. And it shows that when you try to rule on your own terms, by your own will, by your own power, by your own judgment, every time that someone in the book of 1 Samuel tries to act out of their own logic, tries to act out of their own will, bad things happen. Whether it's Saul and the Amalekites, Saul and the witch, Saul leading his own boys into battle when he knows they're going to die, or even David turning his, going to Philistine territory, David going out with Philistines to fight their own people and letting his own wives and children be captured because it's what he thought he should do. Every time the rule of man, and man does what he thinks is right, I love what Solomon will write later on in the book of Proverbs. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And that is the story of his granddad. Not his granddad. That is a story. Not the story of his granddad. That's the story of Saul. That's the story of the king before his dad. It's a story of, as you look at Solomon as king right now, thinking about his father as king. I didn't mean to say granddad. I meant to say the king before his dad. That's his story. The way it seems right to man, man, it leads to death. And that's Saul's story. It's tragic, painful, um, but you're going to see that God's about to do a massive turnaround. He's about to turn around Israel through his servant David. And in that protection, in that protection, he keeps the line of Jesus alive. In that protection, the line of Jesus is kept pure. And that's why you see God's protection of him from the Amalekites, God's protection against the Philistines, is God is drawing a thread 
that will take us all the way to the cross, that takes us all the way to the hope we have today. And if we learn anything from this book, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, He'll make you pass through. So, great study. Um, thanks for joining. Thanks for listening on the podcast. Uh, hopefully, we can be stretched and challenged. Uh, I know it's a good book for me, man. I think you guys are just hanging out with us. We covered five chapters tonight. That has got to be a record. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.